Welcome to another podcast, another episode of the Future of Solar Photovoltaics. Today, I'm very excited to have uh, Mr. Clive Cosby join us from EDF as, as a senior project manager who I've known from uh, 2014, going back to Canada Farm. But the most exciting time was uh, during Shopwick Solar Farm, which was 72 megawatt peak, the biggest solar farm to be constructed ever at the time. I received a letter from... Uh, from the investor witnessed by David Cameron and Xi Jinping. Welcome, Clive. Vikram, good to see you again. Uh, it's good to be uh, been in touch with you and kept in contact over the years. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talking about my experience of delivering, as you say, some of the biggest projects uh, in the country and elsewhere. Right. Uh, as I said on earlier episodes, people are what make this industry great and the future of uh, solar photovoltaics cannot be defined without the people that make this industry possible. Uh, are you able to tell us a bit about your background, you know, what you studied, where you come from? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, and I think that's a big influence over where I've gone in life and what I've done and my experience that I bring to projects. Uh, I grew up on a farm, which was a, an idyllic upbringing in, in South Devon, uh, a long line of family uh, farmers for generations. Uh, so we had a lot of freedom. We're out and about in nature all the time. But I also saw that with my parents that there was a lot of work to be done. Uh, there was a lot of delivery responsibility. Um, you have to look after the animals. You have to tend to the crops. Otherwise, you don't get the yields. You don't get the return. So it's very much a, a performance uh, performance focus. I, I can remember when I was very young, uh, a winter probably in the early 80s where it, it snowed and it was snowing hard. Um, and dad stayed up all night keeping the track to the farm open so that the milk lorry uh, could come in in the morning to take the milk otherwise it would all be it would all go to waste and there wouldn't be any income so uh, it was a very real environment to grow up in and uh, a a good experience uh, for me in life and after that big influences for me were getting into sailing as a as a passion as a as a sport as something that I loved and enjoyed and I I sought that after university after a few years of working in in sales actually and I had the opportunity to get into sailing as a as a profession uh, learned a lot about working with people uh leading people communicating with people I I sailed with Famous people, whatever that means, celebrities, uh, some captains of industry, some very, very good uh, decorated sailors um, and a lot of very, you know, ordinary people that wanted to go sailing. And I I learned how to work with and coach and motivate people to get the best out of them. And I've often said to people in the past that when you're in the middle of an ocean, unless you've sorted out your crew, uh, you've organized and prepared and planned your boat and your passage and you've addressed all of those minor issues that you might have with with people with conflict on board. Um, it's going to be a pretty unpleasant journey, a pretty unpleasant passage. So uh, there's a lot of drilling down into the bottom of things, no stone unturned, uh, and taking full responsibility for everything that you you oversee and need to deliver. Fantastic. And uh, what drew you to the solar industry? How did sailing? lead to a career transition into solar it, it was a direct a direct segue i guess you'd say um i one of the last boats that i worked on professionally uh a beautiful 40 meter classic uh in the mediterranean about well 10 years ago now more than 10 years ago 
and I, I met the director of a, uh, of a solar business and was talking about how, you know, I loved my job and what I did, but I had a family at home and the lifestyle took me away a lot, a lot of traveling, a lot of being away. Uh, when you're on a boat, that, that's your, it's a lifestyle job, right? You, you, you don't get to choose when you go home and when you have holiday, when you have breaks. Uh, so I was missing out on a lot of things at home and wanted to get more of a, quote, normal job at home. And uh, he was very kind to give me an opportunity. And uh, that's how I, I came to start at BSR. And I often said that uh, if I'd have applied for that job, then I may not have got it. But because he saw me in a different context, in a different industry, he appreciated the, the transferable skills, the experience and knowledge that I could bring. Um, and at BSR at that time, it was, a, it was a great place to be. A lot of energy, a lot of good people. Uh, 2014, when I started, was just when things were kind of peaking at the at the sort of the maximum on the on that tariff uh, roller coaster that we were on, and uh, I was given a a huge platform to go and deliver projects very very quickly. I used to love uh, visiting uh, British Solar Renewables or BSR. Oh, even before then, they used to be known as Solar Power Generation Limited (SPGL). Yep. And the reason why I used to love uh, visiting BSR. Was because I'm, I'm, I've grown up in an urban environment in London, and I used to get to drive past Stonehenge on the way there. <laughs> you know, I, I remember meeting lots of people in shipping container offices, and things went absolutely mad. Was, uh, I still haven't written down all the experiences from that time, and 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 BSR weren't the only company we were working with uh, in that period. In terms of your most memorable project experiences from that period. Which one stands out as the most challenging or memorable, and what were the key lessons learnt? Yeah, there were there were a few. I, I I guess I've not been involved in a massive number of projects, but I have been involved in very significant projects. Uh, my first solar park, everyone remembers their their first one, um, was uh, a project called Canada Farm near Blanford Forum. Uh, it was a summer build, and and during that time. That was relatively unusual because we had this mad dash to achieve the tariff deadline at the end of uh, March. So we'd go to site, generally waiting for developments in technology and, and the price to be right in, in January time and have these winter builds to get commissioned and uh, accredited. Um, but we built this project throughout the summer. It was a very dry summer. It was a brilliant site, rectangular project, single field, easy access off a nice tarmac farmer's uh, drive. Um, the ground conditions were, were superb. You could drive your car around um, if you needed to. Um, so there was very little constraints and the project went really well. And because it was after that boom to the March of that year, we had a lot of resource available. We had good contractors at the time. We had a lot of our own people who were fairly experienced by that stage, certainly more experienced than me. They'd been building solar projects for a couple of years and BSR had learnt from building the first project or their first projects uh, really themselves and just figuring out how to do things. Um, so it was a very steep learning curve for me. I'm very grateful to that. Um, that was a that was a fun project. And then moving on from there, then we 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 just really there was a massive step change. That that was a nine meg project, which at the time was was really big. Um, I remember having conversations with a contractor about a, a 20 meg project and a little bit of head scratching about, you know, whether that would even be possible, um, which is, is quite funny now looking back, seeing how far we've come. 
Uh, and then a project came up called Owls Hatch. It had been around for quite some years. It was still subject to planning, but grid was there, land agreements were there, procurement was underway, and uh, it was a collection of nine fields co-joined single landowner uh, near Hearn Bay in Kent. Uh, the planning decision in December was deferred. So then we had this whole project, the biggest project that had ever been built in the country, uh, first 132 connection, first project going above 50 megawatts. And it was all subject to a planning decision, as I recall, on a Thursday evening, the first Thursday of January 2015. And uh, late that night, I got a message to say, we go, green light. And, and then the next day and the, the days following that and the weeks and months were just some incredible experience, actually. Um, as I say, the steepest learning curve ever. We had contractors on site within days. Um, everything had been hinged upon this planning decision because if we didn't get it, then we would have had to have re-evaluated as to whether the project would have been possible in that tariff window. Uh, the, the project succeeded really because we had some incredible people, some personalities involved, some great experience, some brilliant contractors that we brought in who really delivered in very challenging conditions uh, and pulled together to to make it happen. So that, that was a real memorable project. And I would say that I always felt like we were slightly behind the curve. I wasn't fully on top of everything that was happening in the way that I would have liked to have been. We were delivering safely as as best we could at the time you know you have to think the industry was different then um maybe it was a little bit more cowboy to a certain extent uh things have moved on a long long way since then um but that lessons that i learned that in that project and that winter um set me up for some great projects that followed in terms of uh, successful collaboration with experienced contractors if you forget about the negatives and, and focus only on the mm. positives who did you like working with uh, in your time at Canada and and Alsatch? Um well it, there was a and still is I'm sure um a great contractor uh called Sphere who uh those guys were involved from the beginning I think with uh with BSR uh they brought a, a huge amount of knowledge and professionalism I think the 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 quality standards that they adhered to um and and BSR did as well in in general I think there's you know there are there are simpler, quicker and cheaper ways of doing things very often. Um, and I talk about that a lot now with projects that I work in. Uh, you know, obviously program and price is is very important. But fundamentally, if you don't get the quality right, if you don't get the engineering right, you, you, you know, your program, your cost is out the window anyway, because your project will not perform. But I think probably in those days, there was a, quite a few projects that were short termist in the way that they were contracted. There were contractors that wanted to slam it in very quickly, get paid and, and moved on. Um, I like to think that we used to take a more long-term approach because we were integrated as a director, as a developer, uh, EPC, and uh, and then O&M operator. So we had a longer-term view. So I think definitely Sphere. And then with Owls Hatch, um, Robinson Lawler did an incredible job uh, from a standing start in terms of their experience in, in the industry. And, and now they're involved uh, as with Sphere, with with many many projects, and have a huge amount of experience. But their their guys really grafted in very challenging conditions. It was a very wet Q1 that year. There was a lot of mud to deal with. Um, there were a lot of opportunities where they they could have 
um, how would I say, you know, perhaps quite reasonably have, have complained and uh, not fulfilled their contract, um, but they didn't. They, they, they made it happen and uh, we got there, we got commissioned. I have a lot of respect for Sphere and uh, Robinson and Lola. Uh, I haven't got a bad word to say about them. But if you contrast uh, that period with SPGL and Bretisol Renewables and at the same time we had Soul Century and Wersol and several others constructing projects, you know, now if you fast forward to 2023, you know, we, we seem to not be able to build anything. You know, with HS2, there's a complete debacle as one of the most expensive failures on earth. You know, what was different about BSR and your team at the time that you, you were developing and installing so many solar farms? What is it, more than 500 megawatts that BSR have accomplished since? I'm, I'm sure it is, yeah, over the years. And, and things have changed a lot uh, since the, um, the end of that tariff era. Um, it got the industry to where it needed to be, but it didn't quite bridge the gap to parity that was always spoken about as as where we needed the the economics to be to make projects work. So there has been this lullless void, and we're just getting back up to speed now. Um, the goalposts have moved a lot. We're up to hundreds of megawatts now of um, of projects. So um, yeah, there, there's been a you know significant step there. I think what I would say is that we. We we learned, and it was before my time, to be honest. They they learned from day one of how is this possible? How can we do this? How does this work? Um, the early projects they were using Grundemat piles, which are, are sort of driven in uh, within a, a, an air compressor, like a, a tapping them in, and then filled with um, filled with uh, cement, and then angle structure put in it. Um, all the structure for the site was was basically handmade by the guys who are cutting it on site um you know a lot of the specification of uh the components was you know all that they knew at the time but they they got the job done and because they learned how to do it at that smaller scale then stepping up to five meg nine meg 20 meg 50 meg sites they learned how to do it and i always think that they became like a a production line really so every time a new development opportunity came in everyone knew their task everyone knew their job everyone knew the decision points and how we like to operate and uh we delivered and, and delivered a lot of projects and it was, a, it was a really great place to be. I mean, of course, it wasn't perfect. Nothing ever is, but it, it was pretty much as, as good as it gets. And I, I think there were quite a few other um, developer EPCs at that time that had that same level of, a, level of experience to, to deliver so effectively. Well, I'm quite proud of what we've achieved. You know, in the UK, there's nine gigawatts of solar installed uh, on large scale, probably 13 to 15 gigawatts if you include commercial and domestic, you know, uh, so much so that, you know, in, in almost 12 years of continuity, you know, my team has built up a Google Maps uh, uh, database, which plots every single solar farm that's been installed, including uh, the, the two and a half gig that we've supplied to. Um, and it always makes me think uh, with everything that we've been through with Brexit, with the lockdowns, with the Ukraine war, now issues in the Middle East with Israel and, and, and Palestine, you know, and, and now there's this huge development, there's 19 gigawatt peak in development, but uh, not a lot going into construction since mm. 2017. Well, what can you point to a magic ingredient? What was special about BSR that, you know, despite making mistakes, you know, they could construct so much in such little time. Um, 
yeah, the, we just had this great team that that could deliver. We had great contractors who knew and trusted us. I I think there was a lot there was a lot done on trust. A lot of contracts more more on trust at that stage that we had existing relationships. So now with projects that I'm looking at, uh, big projects, interesting projects, um, but you know that 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 trust is uh, the glue that binds relationships, right? And and when you've delivered a project, then then you you know how to do it again. I, I've brought in a few colleagues from that that time back into where I'm at at the moment and it, you just you, you know they come in they sit down you press play you, you know how to work you know how to operate you know how how to deliver um so yeah it was a great uh, great team great leadership uh the the finances were there of course the sector was being supported at the time uh, and there was this big excitement actually um, and it, it was pioneering. We were learning how to do things. We were working out whether we wanted um, our central inverters on concrete foundations or pile foundations. We figured that pile foundations were quicker, simpler, faster, less less site risk uh, to install. Uh, we figured out which was the best trackway to use to be able to get our deliveries around site. So we're delivering all of our materials as much as we could right into site within 100 meters or so of where it's being installed. So you're reducing the, the second handling, the, the logistics, because we had this, we had a cliff edge. We, we had the end of March deadline and we had to be commissioned um, by that time and we would be independently checked and tested and verified um, by, by um, Ofgem. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had, to be, we had to be ready for that. Well, I remember there was a great and immense rivalry at the time. Um, obviously, Solar Century were the pioneers. You know, the, this was supposed to be the Solar Century. And I remember being in uh, Waterloo, talking to them about uh, Southwark Solar Farm, 50 megawatt peak. And it was all over the news or Solar Power Portal. It's, 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 it's a blog that still exists um, where I think B Electric may have developed Rawton Solar Farm and, and, and they wanted to sell or find an EPC. You know, I don't really understand the confidential, confidential dynamics of, on, uh, on how these things work. And, you know, Solar Century, you know, they, there was this talk in the office, you know, that they're competing to, to win this uh, Rawton Solar Farm from BSR. Certainly BSR somehow land that project, RF line them happening at the same sort of time period. And, and, uh, and I said, I remember saying very clearly in the Solar Century office, don't worry about Rawton because they're already on site at Shopwick Solar Farm. <laughs> so, you know, it was an immense period. And yeah, before we talk about Shopwick, you know, what were the sort of learning experiences from Owl's Hatch? You know, it's, it's, it's in the same sort of ballpark or area as, as Cleve Hill Solar Farm may have been known as Project Fortress at some point. You know, in terms of flooding and ground conditions, you know, what, what did you learn or take away from the experience at Owl's Hatch? In terms of the the, spe- the specifics of the ground conditions, yeah, uh, propensity of flooding, you know, working in the mud. I think we just you have to be you have to be thinking on your feet. You have to be uh, dynamic in the way that you manage. You need a lot of contingency. We we had a plan with the trackway company that they were going to put in kilometers of trackway for us um, on the second week. <clears throat> On a Thursday morning, the MD of the business was in my office before seven o'clock before I got there on a busy construction day towards the beginning of a of the build of a solar park um, to tell me that they could not fulfill the order that we placed with them. Uh, so we we had to we had to move. We had to find alternative trackway. We had to start importing stone and build roads so that we could get around the the field. So when you have co-joined co-located fields you have these pinch points where you're going through you know where were hedges or trackways to access through gates and um 
when it's raining and wet and muddy, there's a lot of topsoil, a lot of vehicle movements. Uh, the conditions for moving around can be incredibly challenging. Um, so you need a lot of motivated staff. You need a lot of uh, vehicles and a, and a decent transport plan of how you're going to achieve this. We, we began to realise partway through that project, maybe into the second month, that we couldn't move the modules around site quick enough because we couldn't drive the uh, the solar trucks the, with the, delivering the modules uh, around the site. So they came into a, a separate entrance, as I remember. We used to offload three pallets as part of our testing protocol. So one got tested. Depending on how they performed, the, the other two might get tested. Uh, worst case, of course, that whole um, delivery container could get uh, could get returned to the factory. Um, so we're documenting the, the the quality of the the modules and how they're arriving at site in terms of the performance. Um, but we couldn't we couldn't get them into the field quick enough because they then had to be moved on by tractor and trailer, uh, and there was only so much room on the roadways during the day. So we started running twenty four seven. So we brought in a new site manager and a new team to just be running out modules, lacing them out uh, around the clock. And without that, we would not have delivered on time. Um, so it's having the, the resource and the, the, the kind of just being in touch with what's, with what's going on, really. Having a good team around you who aren't afraid to put their hand up and uh, share their concerns. Um, it's bringing in people that have got knowledge and experience, but also just learning yourself. And I'd, I'd always say to the team, uh, what, what, what concerns you? What's on your mind? Um, you know, in the evening when you're going to bed, what's the what's the thing that you're sorting that you're thinking about that is uh, just concerning you and causing you anxiety? Because that's what we we need to we need to deal with. Um, I've also said that you know when we're building at that kind of pace, we were building. You know, probably we built in ten weeks that project. By the time we got mobilised to site, fifty megs, which at the time was quite impressive, um, and the sort of pace that. You know, now we could probably easily achieve, and contractors are used to uh, delivering. But we need lots of long, boring, productive days. We don't need any excitement, any dramas. We just need that flatline productivity mm-hmm. to to get the job done. Absolutely, and uh, I remember, you know, then then uh, moving on to Shopwick Solar Farm in Wrexham near the paper mill. Uh, I remember being disheartened over Christmas because I thought the project was dead. Nothing's going to happen, and you know, and interesting, you raised the point about team dynamic and, and chemistry, because you know I've been, I've been working for Studer Cables in Switzerland, um, formerly owned by Leone, a five billion euro PLC, existing for almost five hundred years. You know, uh, very corporate, and but we had some great um, backers, and, and 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 we always had an amazing impression of BSR, especially I think driving past Stonehenge helped, and <laughs> factory visits helped, and and now they reflect a lot on remote working and trying to recover that some sort of team dynamism. You know, I remember, you know, losing all hope on Shotwick and suddenly we'd receive a phone call from a Mr. Simon Ng saying, you know, uh, the founder of BSI has been to 10 Downing Street and you'll get a letter from the Chinese government and, you know, can you make two million pounds worth of stock without any guarantees? And, you know, I had no hope and, and I sent this really fancy letter to our board of directors, especially to Mr. Christoph Studer and, I received an email back saying we've started production. You know, and this was, I think, a few weeks before Grid Connection, you know. So, but we managed to get there somehow. You know, I remember making it up as I go along in terms of the cable schedule because there just wasn't enough time. And luckily, we were 
you know, within ninety nine percent of what was required. We had we had you know two driver teams driving twenty four seven to to deliver to site. We had reports that you know the cables were arriving still warm from the production line. <laughs> that's that's how quick we were working. So you know, enter the Chinese and they you build the uh, the biggest solar farm in the country and and you don't want to slow down there. It seems then, you know, your, your, your travels or your ambition took you to Myanmar. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about that? And, and especially China Triumph Engineering? Who, who yeah. are these guys? I remember <laughs> visiting them in Shanghai, but still uh, yeah. I haven't recovered from, from that period. Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things at BSR was uh, there, were, there was the, the cycles driven by the tariffs. Uh, there were cycles in terms of funding as well, but... Then there was a, a relationship that developed with uh, WeLink, CTIEC. So WeLink are the project management sort of uh, TA arm of uh, CTIEC, who uh, China Triumph International Engineering Company, uh, large EPC. They have a module uh, manufacturer as part of the group as, as well. Uh, they came in and uh, gave us the ability to deliver uh, Shotwick, um, but also Swindon Solar Park that you mentioned earlier. So that that was uh that was next level to be honest because we'd learnt so much from that previous uh winter and BSR actually only came across that project I understand uh, at the solar event at uh, Birmingham NEC probably October time uh, we were on site in January having redesigned the park we looked at it uh in a number of ways the the EPC that were engaged or the developer they'd looked at uh having a compound on the site and then building themselves out and i just thought how on earth are you going to do that in that time scale um so we negotiated some land and built a compound outside of the footprint it meant that we had to put in some high pressure uh, gas pipe um crossings which were were complicated and expensive, but it just de-risked the project uh, massively. We uh, we put in a new uh, logistics plan and different gateways and different access to sites so that this time we actually could get all of our deliveries, all of our structure and modules and cable trucks into the field and unloading as, as we uh, planned to do previously at Owls Hatch. And it ran like clockwork, really. I think we were able to complete with a brilliant team that joined us to deliver and the experience we had. Uh, just a field factory that flowed from one end to the other. Um, we had some great contractors, um, in particular Tech Energy and uh, Aleco 99, who delivered on the LV side and just really, really made it happen. And, and that pro- that project really is probably one of well my proudest and um, you know the greatest pleasure to to have uh, delivered. Um, and following that, I, I realised that there were less opportunities in the UK. Perhaps that was the biggest thing that was going to be delivered for uh, some period of time. And uh, I was able to take an opportunity with uh, with WeLink to work with them with CTIC uh, to deliver in, in Myanmar, um, which is also known as Burma. Uh, it's a... Uh, a country, a very sort of under or less developed country in Southeast Asia between Thailand and Bangladesh. And uh, there was a project there that they were involved with to build a 200 megawatt uh, solar plant in that country, the first phase of which would be 50 megawatts. Um, when really there was there was nothing there. There was no no solar, no solar infrastructure. So it was a it was a familiar subject, but really extraordinary and unfamiliar circumstances to be in. But I remember receiving some, you know, solar's what we're here to talk about, but, you know, Myanmar, you know, with, with everything that's happening in that part of the world, the exotic environment, you know, the issues with um, 
the genocide, you know. Uh, I remember receiving some great photographs from you about the train journeys, you know. How was it like getting to sight? And, and can you tell us a bit more about the environment that you experienced? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was fascinating. It was extraordinary. I mean, one of the first things you notice, you're turning up for meetings in Yangon, which is the, the former capital, but the biggest city in the south, the, the port in the south, uh, previously known as uh, Rangoon. Um, and outside of all of the building, there's a there's a generator. Um, and you'd be in a meeting like in a room like this and uh, all the lights would go out. And the first time it happens, you're a little bit concerned about what's going on, but no one, no one panics. They'll sit there for a few seconds. Someone starts the generator or it automatically kicks in and the lights come back on. So they, mm-hmm. you know, they're having blackouts and brownouts all the time. They, they have a lot of grid issues. Um, the country's developing and growing massively, but most of the population live a very much subsistence, humble life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and this project was right in the middle of the country. So this, uh, this land was uh, given to the project. Uh, I'm not quite sure how, but it was it was virgin land. You can imagine that really no one had ever been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they first had to go in and cut down all the, the bushes and the trees and the shrubs in this area. Uh, you can still see the footprint of it actually on Google Earth. Um, wow. this, this, this land is running with little rivulets and little valleys and uh, also uh, a good number of snakes as well. Um, so it's um, you, you, yeah, you have to be careful where, where you trod. I, I always went everywhere with a local who um, you know you felt would uh, help preserve your your safety. Well, some of the worrying things I've read about Myanmar, besides the genocide, which we won't go into, it's out of the scope of our podcast. You know, uh, I've always had a positive impression of Buddhism. You know, I'm, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I come from a Hindu Punjabi's background. But and I've been fascinated by by the teachers from Buddhism and, and Myanmar, I remember reading, it's almost like an extremist Buddhist country. You know? What was your interaction? What was your experience of Buddhism while you, while you were there? Yeah, it's, um, it's hard to say because this was happening whilst we were there and we became increasingly aware of it and had some conversations with um, people that operated on the developer side. So we had a, uh, a Thai... Burmese developer, mm-hmm. uh, Chinese funder, and we at WeLink, I, I was British, but there's Italian, Spanish, Irish, Bulgarians, you know, I was probably the only only Brit. Um, so it was a real cosmopolitan mix. Uh, but it, it was it was really quite clear that the sort of the contempt that was felt, uh, you know, really strong, even from people that were, you know, Western educated, but were... Burmese from mm-hmm. from Myanmar, mm-hmm. um, and that was quite unsettling. Um, so yeah, it's it's difficult to dwell on that really because at, at the lowest, you know, at a ground level, the people we worked with they were they were they were wonderful people, and uh, you had some incredible experiences. They were so kind and generous and keen and to be involved in the project and excited about it, and yet within their country, you know, under their leadership, uh, there was this. Uh, genocide mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know not more than a few hundred miles from where we were where mm-hmm. we were operating uh, and and i think that you know for that and some other reasons that it was sort of my time to to bow out i i found a great um team who came in uh mainly south africans and they came in and delivered that project all the way through to to completion so Fantastic. And, and then you went on to Portugal straight after that. Yeah, so WeLink had uh, a lot of projects, a lot of interest in different places, offices in Milan, Barcelona, uh, worked there quite a bit. Um, yeah, we 
built some uh, some significant projects in in Portugal, uh, forty six meg, two hundred and twenty odd megawatt sites, uh, right in the you know probably what is some of the highest uh, rates of irradiance in 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 Europe, uh, in the middle of the Algarve. Uh, so inland, uh, in the centre, um, you know, 50 k's in from from the coast, irradiance really high, land pretty cheap, um, but yeah, some incredible sites. Uh, the the Solara Solara Quattro project has been renamed now. Um, yeah, very interesting land conditions. So um, very rural, uh, a lot of unused farmland, um, a lot of. Um, Little communities and villages where, you know, there's probably, I don't know, less than 50% occupancy and mm-hmm. uh, the people that live there as the, the older generation, the older community, maybe there's still a cafe, maybe there's still a shop there. Um, so a very interesting way of way of life um but sort of very much under underfunded under resourced and, and we built on land that was uh not especially well suited to solar um apart from the irradiant so quite challenging sites very undulating uh, terrain rocky so all of the piling had to be uh pre-drilled all of the trenches had to be uh kind of cut with a special machine you couldn't just uh dig with an excavator in the way that we're used to um but again got got delivered and uh it's uh delivering a lot of green energy down there so now, now you're back in the UK working for probably one of the largest energy companies in the world with Energy Day France or EDF. Yeah. And uh, uh, before that, you had a, you had a small uh, stint at uh, Cleve Hill Solar Farm. Yeah. Uh, with Quinbrook, you know. Well, what made you want to come back to dark and miserable UK after all these exotic jungle experiences and... You know. Yeah, it's probably uh, <laughs> maybe similar to before when I was, I was sailing. It sort of takes you away. And uh, I, I love traveling and interacting with people in different countries and different cultures and different experiences. Uh, that That's worth a lot more to me than a, a regular nine to five for, for the next decade or, or so. Um, so they were really rich experiences. And, and as I say, sort of familiar subject matter, but different circumstances and uh, work with some good people there, uh, did some good work. But then, yeah, so... Cleve Hill came up as a as an opportunity uh, to to come back uh, and work in the UK. Uh, it's it all it always been there. I think even since the days of being involved with Owls Hatch, Cleve was mentioned. It was being developed at that stage. Um, mm-hmm. It was a a long way off, and just seemed like crazy that we were ever going to be building something that big. So yeah, the opportunity to to work on that was um was you know very enticing. Um and it was a it's a good project. It's it's under construction now, it's underway. Um it, it it's really very much pioneering. Um and now with EDF similar. So Longfield is uh it's consented now, uh four hundred megawatts, so similar but just a bit bigger than than Cleve. Um we we're working on going to tender um we're looking at all the pre-construction elements of that project to kind of in a way you know deliver like we did at Shotwick I think in my mind that's the way that I see it we learnt in many different projects different places bringing together and building a team uh to de- deliver this project out effectively because this is the the new normal we're we're talking to EPCs um going towards this tendering process and it's uh it's a big step um, and we need to work out, you know, the most efficient way to deliver these projects because it's all about maintaining quality, but focusing on 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 price and and program. And you know, the quicker we can get the project built, the distance between starting to spend money and getting that generation, that revenue return, um, is is key. And we're tying in with National Grid now. 
So there's some big challenges there. We're connecting at 400. They're building a substation. We're building a substation. So it's it's really next level. 400,000 volts, right? 400 kV. Yeah, wow. yeah, wow. yeah. Transmission voltage. Yeah. And, uh, to put things into perspective, it, it seems like wherever there's a big project, you seem to be there, <laughs> whether it's a war zone or uh, a muddy wow. field in England or Wales. And, you know, uh, if, we, if we look at context for a second, you know, Shopwick was the largest solar farm ever built in, in the UK, 72 megawatt peak. It's only been eclipsed by Landwern, which is only a couple of megawatts more. Yeah. But Cleve Hill's 300 megawatt peak more than Shotwick yeah. in a period where we've got labour shortages, where you know, people have had mental health challenges with remote working and, you know, lots of people, you know, they, they talk about the great retirement and, and so on. And so you, you've been, in, you've had some uh, involvement with that. And then Longfield is even bigger. It's four or 500 megawatt peak. So, you know, what do you see on these sites? And and, what, and the, the, the subject or the goal here is the, the future of solar photovoltaics. You know, do you see solar competing with food? Well, it's a big, yeah, it's a big site. And um, there's certainly a lot of efficiencies in in putting that size and that scale. I've, I've been involved with rooftops before and um, they've got their place as well. But, you know, it's... Uh, on this project, it's one landowner, so it's a one single agreement, which brings efficiencies, uh, makes it far simpler in many regards. There is the consenting process to go through. So uh, once you move above 49.9 AC export, uh, it goes away from the local planners in terms of the uh, the, the consenting or the, the approval. Uh, so it has to go through the Secretary of State uh, and to be consented uh, to become a, a, an NSIP, a nationally significant infrastructure project which gives you um, certain privileges and, and rights but also responsibilities we're now going through the stage of discharging all of those conditions so proving to the local planners that we are compliant and how how we will comply um, there's there's a lot more there's a lot more than we ever used to do in terms of getting this to site and and getting it to 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 be realized in in terms of uh, environmental ecological considerations traffic considerations considerations with regard to to neighbors and and you know the wider community on a project there's uh, looking at managing the the the, so- the soil the the ground conditions um, as well uh, committing to uh, enhancing the community um, the environment uh, giving employment opportunities as as well so it is the future it is it is on currently farmed land. It will return to be farmed land. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, for a period of time, it will be a solar park. Uh, the land will get the opportunity to regenerate to, to an extent. Uh, during that time, you know, it is possible to, um, that, well, there are looks and moves to grow crops. It's, uh, you can graze as well, um, around as we've been doing on many, oh, many parks. What is the interaction with, with the landowners or the farmers or the people that, that, that work there? Because, you know, when we travel, the nature of, jo- of our jobs means we travel a lot. We talk on the phone a lot to kill time on the road sometimes. <laughs> and then, and what made me feel, um, interested was you know you mentioned you know you had chats with a farmer at Cleve Hill you know you said good luck with the flooding or and you mentioned there were potatoes in Longfield you know what is your view from from the farmer's perspective why are they giving up their farming careers to to, to farm energy now yeah I, I suppose a, a lot of it is probably economics right it's economic stability for them isn't it as, as like an income there's also you know there is a there's a need there's a demand right we need we need to clean up our energy supply chain um mm-hmm. 
you know, energy demand um, is is increasing. We need to diversify it. We need to get away from uh, oil, gas, fossil fuels as as much as we can. I'm sure that they'll always uh, play a part. Uh, but we have this opportunity with these big projects to, you know, put a large part of our infrastructure over to renewable energy. Um, so a project like this and Cleave and others that we're developing, uh, where you've got significant amount of solar connected with uh, significant battery storage as well, um, can be part of the solution for um, giving us renewable energy and uh, decreasing our reliance o- upon fossil fuel. So Longfield and Cleaver, they're nationally significant infrastructure projects, um, referred to as NSIPs sometimes. You know, a lot of this is public information. It is uh, in, in the public interest to go look at the documents, to question things. You know, I, I remember reading the grid connection for Longfield was delayed to October 2028, 20, uh, potentially. Construction starting in 25. And, and now, as we come towards the end of our podcast, you know, uh, we talk about the future. Where, where, where do you see we will be uh, this time next year or in 2028? You know, what, what do you think will happen eventually at these sites? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a long way. It's not my area, to be honest, but there's a long way for the grid to to go to develop in mm-hmm. terms of supporting these projects. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of upgrade works are, are needed for that. Um, as I say, I think solar could be part of the solution. Um, I've been working in solar now for 10 years. Um, I think as Al Gore, he said in The Inconvenient Truth mm-hmm. uh, that it's very hard to convince somebody of the uh, of the truth uh, when their livelihood depends upon it. Uh, he was, of course, talking about the fossil fuel industry and talking about the end of that uh, end of that era and the need to progress beyond it. Um, I'm not entirely blinded by solar. I think there are other opportunities out there. Of course, there's wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, one area that I personally feel, probably because of my background and upbringing and passion for for things in the marine environment is is tidal energy mm-hmm. uh you know if you think about a renewable energy source that you can model 24 7 infinitely that it's always flowing right so four times a day round round our shores it changes direction so you've got this lull period but somewhere else mm-hmm. you'll still be potentially able to generate there are there are companies that are in that sector now that are coming up with solutions um of course the argument always is that it's so expensive, the engineering uh, challenges that we have. But mm-hmm. probably if you went back 25, 30 years and said we're going to be putting wind turbines mm-hmm. offshore, off the coast and connecting them into our grid infrastructure, people said, you're crazy. That's going to cost too much. That's going to be too mm-hmm. complicated from an engineering point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, now let's let's change those um, in future developments for tidal turbines and see where we can go. And if there were to be more investment in that, uh, and then that would be 24-7 providing us uh, with energy solutions. And you mentioned before balancing ethics with ambition, you know, I won't go too much into that, you know. Uh, there's enormous politics with energy. We are in the middle of an energy war. Um, in the future, we God knows what will happen with hydrogen, with tidal, uh, working under seawater, you know. Uh, and there's also the big seaward China, you know, they've incentivized and supported this industry and spent billions, hundreds of billions of pounds. We're looking at module prices of uh, less than 18 cents a watt and potentially 40 gigawatt peak in stock. Yeah, in in Europe, so you know China has driven down prices for solar panels in the same way as semiconductors for computer chips in the past. So it seems to be following the same same sort of pattern. But in terms of uh, uh, your advice for people that that are potentially listening to this podcast, who who may be interested in contributing to sustainable practices or pursuing a career in renewable energy what, what would be your advice for them how can they get into solar and and get to build the biggest projects like you have 
Well, uh, I suppose get involved. I, I, I've said to younger people before, you know, if you've if you've got an interest, I think one area to get into is is engineering. Um, I, I don't have that background. I've got a degree in surveying, which is is very useful. Uh, but I don't have a technical background and knowledge, so I've seen a, a lot of very successful people who've got that basic understanding uh, through their through their studies. Um, so electrical, mm-hmm. technical engineering, uh, there's huge opportunities. If you look at the the giant leaps that we're taking in terms of technology as as, as we move forward, and and that will that will surely continue. Um, I think other areas as well that I I see. I just think that people are so important to everything that we do like you say one of your passions for being involved reasons for being involved is the people and uh, the relationships that you can develop and, and you enjoy that um you know people make it happen without people no matter how far ai goes you know we need people to deliver these projects and, and make things happen so it's about you know learning how to develop and foster those relationships for me some of my experience that, that i've had it's about learning how to put people first um about how to uh, encourage uh, and facilitate autonomy to let them thrive to be able to make decisions to be able to make mistakes but learn uh, to develop this independence and interdependence to be able to deliver these great projects in a in a really successful way. I mean, I've found it just really thrilling in the past to be involved in projects to just let things go. And I probably learned that very much from being, you know, if you think about being offshore, and I was very often the only professional on board the boat, and I have a crew of up to 18 people. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm crossing an ocean, I've got to be able to sleep at some point. And you've got to be able to trust the people that are on the boat to make the right decisions and to wake you up or to take a course of action. Um, otherwise, you're not going to sleep and that's not sustainable. Um, so that that's where I would, you know, encourage people to go and, and get involved, you know, take responsibility for what's happening, um, the state of our planet and see opportunities of what we can do in the future. It seems like a lot of farmers and, and sailors, you know, I know Nick Keeler, Solar Southwest, he's in New Zealand now. He's a he's a, 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 an enthusiastic sailor as well. So, you know, I... I I got excited to get into this industry because you get to meet some exciting people. You get out of your urban bubble and you do other things. But also at heart, you know, some people call me the cable guy, but you know, I'm I'm a total nerd at heart, and I find it mind-boggling how you can have a semiconductor, a silicon solar cell, you know, and then they shoot, um, you know, electron beams or whatever it is with particle accelerators. They, you know, remove holes or add holes or add electrons and suddenly you shine sunlight at this solar cell and you have electricity you know how this works is completely uh, it gives me tingles you know we have the sun that is producing energy 24 hours a day you know it's still there when the earth turns and uh, you know instead of uh, splitting the atom i think we should use the nuclear reactor we already have in the sky and so I do very much enjoy the technology and, you know, this isn't a technical discussion, but it's something that, you know, we will come to in the future, you know. In terms of your view on the technology, when you see masses of uh, solar panel in, in the field, what goes through your mind? You know, how, how do you see it creating energy for you? Uh, I mean, yeah, it, it, I have... It's quite impressive, actually, to look at. I have found one of the greatest things being involved in the project is just looking at that physical transformation and the scale of what we can build and achieve. Um, but as I say, is is just one of the solutions, one of the options for uh, creating greener energy for ourselves. And and just you know, when you're describing there and 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 getting excited about the engineering, I I, I 
always just imagine it in my mind that I, I don't know what happens. The, 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 the sun shines on the module and there's all these little yeah. impalumpas inside that jump around and make all this electricity come out. So I'm not, I'm not as technical as, as you. Fantastic. Clive, thanks very much for joining us. No, great to see you again, Vikram. Thank you.